Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. I'm a guy who uh, tends to be fascinated by history, and I've always found it rather sad uh, when old country churches fall into disrepair and get torn down. However, it's even sadder still when there is a church building that still stands surrounded by houses and growing community and the pews are almost empty on a Sunday. On the other hand, it's exciting to see when some of those church buildings that began maybe as that simple structure, just a sanctuary and with a basement underneath, get added on to it and with a significant expansion. But, but far more exciting it is to worship in a church where the congregation is expanding and the sanctuary is packed on a Sunday morning. I visited one of those last September on my sabbatical break, and the, and the pews were full of people of all ages, uh, including really an extraordinarily high number of young families with lots of little kids, and, and the people seemed to just sing their hearts out as they worshiped the Lord together. What a privilege to be a part of a congregation like that. I want to share with you from God's Word today about God's plan to expand his church. And I want to do so by first taking a look back into the Old Testament at the emphasis that is placed there on the temple. And thus you might notice the title of my message today is God's Temple Expansion Project. I have to give credit for that title to our Old Testament professor at our FLC schools, Dr. Brent Olson. Um, he wrote this great article I read on the way back from Texas that's um, in the Spirit Up Journal. Um, and, and, and he quotes G.K. Beale, who, who says this, God's grand plan for history is essentially a temple expansion project. Now, I'm hoping that rouses your curiosity. I'd like you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as, as we begin today um, in just two short verses, but I invite you to stand in reverence to God's word here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Lord God, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would help us to grasp um, how that temple in the Old Testament that is so much the focus uh, points us ahead to something even greater as you seek to expand that work that you have among us here on this earth. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. G.K. <clears throat> Beale says, God's grand plan for history is essentially a temple expansion project. God purposed to make the entire cosmos his imminent dwelling place, and he chose human beings as his means to do so. So just what is a temple? The basic meaning of the Greek word naus, which is translated temple in our English Bibles, is a dwelling place of deity. 
the inward shrine or sanctuary. And all of the references to a temple in the Bible seem to look back then at the Old Testament people of Israel and to this one location in Jerusalem where there was a temple built to the one true God. It was a temple that more than once was built to a magnificent structure only to be largely destroyed and then rebuilt again. Actually, that happened three times in their history. And, and this helps us understand a bit of what the Apostle Paul is talking about as he explains God's plan for the temple, plans that went really beyond that physical structure of a temple building. But before I explain a bit about those three Old Testament structures at, at Jerusalem, we, we need to look even back further, really to the beginning of the history of God's people. We step way back to the very beginning, and uh, to Adam and Eve, who lived in what you might say would be a, a natural sanctuary, the Garden of Eden. And they lived in a personal relationship with their creator God, who the Bible says walked among them in the garden. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of that beautiful garden. And, and ever after, sin has impaired mankind's relationship with God. Well, we'll step ahead in history, um, in, in which God's chosen people then had endured 400 years of slavery in Egypt before God then rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh. We read about an exodus, and he brought them out of Egypt, and they, because of continual disobedience after that, ended up spending 40, 40 years wandering in the wilderness before being brought then at last into the promised land. Well, during those 40 years in the wilderness, God wanted his people to know that he hadn't forgotten them, that he was still with them. And so he instructed Moses to, to have a tabernacle built, really a temporary temple of sorts, a, a, a portable, earthly dwelling place for God. Now, let me explain. God didn't physically live there in that tent like we think of people living somewhere. Um, God is a spirit, and, and so he can't be limited to any one time or place. But as a condescension to his people, he had this tabernacle built to represent his presence with them, and also then teach them about himself and about themselves and their sinfulness and their need for forgiveness and cleansing. And so the tabernacle included inside it then, among other, various other things, a place called the Holy of Holies. A place so holy that only the high priest was allowed to enter it, and only once a year. And he would then bring the blood of a lamb, animal sacrifice, to be poured out on the mercy seat symbolizing then the blood that needed to be shed for forgiveness of sin. Well, almost 500 years after the tabernacle's construction, God's mobile dwelling place was upgraded, you might say, to a permanent structure. King David conceived of the idea of it, and his son Solomon had it built, and it was a magnificent temple in Jerusalem. We often call it Solomon's Temple. And the main structure of it, it was built out of quarried stone, and it was about 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high, and it had a large porch in front, and then side rooms all the way around it. And the interior, it had all kinds of wood carvings and engravings of, of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and various things. And the floor of it was overlaid with gold. And I've just really barely begun the description of this impressive, elaborate temple, built to be a place for the one true God, a place for God's people then to come and worship him. 
And this temple too then included the Holy of Holies room, set apart to remind sinners of the holiness of God. That temple took seven years to build. And when it was all completed and dedicated, it tells us about in 1 Kings chapter 8, how a cloud filled the temple with the glory of the Lord. Well, in the years that followed, many of the leaders of the nations of Israel and Judah turned away from the one true God to, to serve idols. And, and the people followed them into idol worship, and the, the temple fell into, dis, or into a neglect, you might say. And at times there would be a leader that would turn back to God and even lead a revival in that land. But eventually that too stopped. And God brought judgment on the nation of Judah. And in 586 B.C. the Babylonians came and they wiped out the capital city of Jerusalem, including destroying this magnificent temple of Solomon. And God's people spent 70 years in exile in Babylon before some of them were allowed to go back and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and that temple. And when they got back there and they saw the devastation of the city and the temple ruins, they wept. Work begun on a new temple at the same spot. But for various reasons, that work was delayed. And it ended up being over 20 years before the new temple was completed. It's sometimes called Zerubbabel's temple, because he was the leader from the tribe of Judah who superintended that work. Well, this Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple, was relatively modest in size and furnishings, and many were disappointed because it lacked the grandeur of Solomon's temple before. But still it was dedicated, and worship of the one true God was again restored for years to come. Well, years later than that, when King Herod the Great came along, Herod was a builder of some great fortresses like Masada up overlooking the Dead Sea and, and like the city of Caesarea along the Mediterranean coast. And, and he undertook a project to expand the temple in Jerusalem as well. Sometimes call that Herod's temple. He had the area of the Temple Mount doubled and surrounded um, by a retaining wall with gates. And the whole temple area ended up comprising about a sixth of the size of the city of Jerusalem at that time. The temple itself was raised and it was enlarged with, with, and it's faced with white stone and it became a far more magnificent structure. And the work on it um, was begun in 20 B.C. and it had lasted for 46 years and was still going on when Jesus Christ came on the scene and started his earthly ministry. And you might recall his, his disciples remarking when they walked by it, what magnificent stones, Jesus, look at that. Well, we read in our text from John today, Jesus made a statement um, as he was outside that temple. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews' response to him that day was, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? They didn't understand that he was speaking about a different temple. The temple of his body, which the Spirit of God lived in, and the Spirit who would, after he died on the cross, would three days later then raise him from the dead. And it was not until after that, 70 A.D., that Herod's elaborate temple was also wiped out. 
by the Romans, uh, along with most of the city of Jerusalem. So now, with all of that historical background in mind, we come back to our verse here. What's the Apostle Paul saying here when he says, you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? And when he talks about what happens to someone who destroys the temple of God? Well, first of all, let's sort out this. Who is you? And there's no doubt Paul is speaking here to Christians in, in a particular congregation, that congregation at Corinth. But, he, but is he talking to them as individuals or as a whole group? When he says the Spirit of God dwells in you. When we look in the Gospel of John, for instance, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, he talks to them as individuals and he says to them, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We believe that when we become believers in Jesus Christ as our Savior from sin, that the Holy Spirit comes in and he takes up residence in our individual hearts and lives. And he guides us individually then in our conscience as our conscience is trained by the written word of God. And so we might at first assume that our text today is also a singular you. The you referring then to each of our individual bodies. And that might seem to fit also with what we read if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There are some very similar words to what we read for our text today. And there it says this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, but you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And the context of that passage is that Paul is confronting sexual immorality in the congregation at Corinth. And sexual immorality is, is personal sin of misusing one's body to be sexually active outside of marriage. And so relating to that, then Paul is explaining to individuals, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit then dwells in the individual hearts and lives of each one of us. However, as we look at our text in, in chapter 3 that we read earlier today, we see a plural you. Referring to the congregation, to the body of Christ as the temple of God. And you really don't see that in the English, since we have the exact same form of the word you, whether I'm talking to just one of you, or to all of you. Unless, of course, you're from Texas. Because you see down there, then they say, y'all, to refer to more than one. Y'all understand what I'm talking about. Now, why does it even matter here? Well, it's because the Bible teaches that there is a, a special presence of the Holy Spirit of God whenever believers gather in Jesus' name. Jesus himself said, Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. The New Living Translation of our text words it this way, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? So what does it mean that the congregation, the gathering, is a temple of God? Well, we think of temples as buildings. In 1 Corinthians 3 says to the congregation at Corinth, in, in verse 9, you are God's field, 
God's building. But this isn't a physical building he's talking about. For instance, if you go to the book of Acts, and Paul is speaking there on Mars Hill to the philosophers, and he says, God does not dwell in temples made with hands, that is in physical buildings. No, you see, he dwells in a different kind of temple. The congregation is the temple of God, and his spirit is among us as we gather each week. There's an old chorus, probably some of you know this one. There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place, and I know that it's the spirit of the Lord. There's sweet expressions on each face, and I know they feel the presence of the Lord. Well, that 1960s song might sound a little sappy, and it might say something that's a little bit beyond reality, in that not every face here today or whenever we gather will always have a smile on their face. But it does describe the reality of knowing the presence of the Holy Spirit of God as we gather together. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 2, there Peter also describes this building and he says to individual believers here that you also are living stones and are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. In other places too in Scripture, it explains how Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and then the Christian church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles and then we as living stones continue to build on top of that. We are Christ's church and as living stones, God is building his church, his temple as the gathering of his people. As we think about that concept of living stones, it's interesting to me that one of our newest uh, AFLC home mission congregations is named Living Stone. It's a fellowship of Chinese students at the U of M seeking to reach Chinese grad students with the gospel who will then go back to their country and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to others there in China. And you know, in China today, many congregations don't own a physical building. They, they just meet in homes. And they're quite aware that they are building the church of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean for us to be the temple of God? Appreciate what... Uh, Joe Sloniker says, and I quote here, There is an inbuilt communal aspect of being a part of God's family. Paul uses the metaphor of the body of Christ to describe the Christian community and how all of the diverse members need each other. And there is an inherent assumption of teamwork, cooperation, and unity as the people of God function as the temple today. The temple is where God dwells with his people throughout the biblical story. So if the people of God are the temple, that means that it is through these people that God reaches the world. In the ancient world, people traveled from far and wide to encounter God at the temple in Jerusalem. Now the people of God are the temple and take God's presence to the world. If the people are the temple, then they must make his glory known to all nations from now until Christ returns. End quote. You see, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. Jesus paid with his own precious blood on the cross that we would know forgiveness of our sin and have a changed life. And then we are called then to glorify God. So how do we glorify God together? I appreciate Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together. He just simply says this. We sing together, we say our prayers together, and we eat together. I think that describes this pretty well here at Maranatha, doesn't it? 
Gene Getz, uh, the measure of a healthy church, uh, there he says that, that Paul, at least 40 times in his letters, has statements using the words one another regarding our mutual responsibilities to each other in the body of Christ. You see, as we care for each other in the body of Christ, we are a real contrast to the world and, and what they have to offer it, and they are drawing them to see that the living God is truly among us. John Stott, a contemporary Christian, and in one of the chapters that he titles Secular Challenges to the World, speaks of how folks throughout the world are on quests for three things. They're looking for three things. Transcendence, significance, and community. And we in the Christian church have what they're looking for in all three areas. So why is destroying this temple serious? resulting in serious consequences. Well, it tells us here in verse 20, the temple of God is holy. We in the Christian church have been given a, a role by God himself. We, we're not just here to live for ourselves and to do anything we want. We have been set apart to serve God and to fulfill his purpose. And the congregation gathering like this is God's plan. And, and it's God's plan of spreading the gospel to the world. And there is no plan B. We are it. And we all have a part in it, whether we think our part is significant or not. There were uh, three men once that were building at a building site, and they were all doing basically the same work. And one day they were each asked to describe their work. And one of them said, I shovel dirt into a wheelbarrow and I push it across the site and I empty it. Second one said, I come to work and I make a living to put food on the table and a roof over my kids' heads and then I go home. And the third guy said this, I am privileged to be building a cathedral. The first one saw it as drudgery, the second saw it as a means to an end, and the third had a sense of the grandeur and purpose of what he was doing. When Paul talked about his work and, and that of his fellow workers, he said, we work as a team with the same purpose, and that purpose is God's building. And he, he could have described his work, you know, think of Paul, he could have described it as getting on a ship and sailing to city after city, preaching there, and sometimes getting beat up or thrown in jail, and, and then moving on. But he saw a grander picture. He was, he was building. God's building the church. And Paul wanted the Corinthians to, to recognize and to revere this concept of the church. And, and so he told them, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in you? We have work ahead of us, even this week. Some of you will be helping to get ready for vacation Bible school by working on that on Tuesday. Some of you might be willing to come and join us on Wednesday night and, and hand out some VBS flyers uh, to the neighborhood nearby. Others will be gathering with some ladies or with the senior citizens uh, for Bible study and fellowship on, on Wednesday morning or on Thursday night. And you are encouraging each other and supporting Christ's work in the church through prayer. Others will be serving lunch at a funeral this Friday. Others will be cooking or serving men's breakfast on Saturday. And it's all a, a part of the work as we together are part of a building project. God's temple expansion project. I end with a quote from David Platt. He says this. 
There, there is a unique dynamic when the church comes together, the, the dwelling place of God's Spirit. He is with you. He is among you. And when you gather with the church, just a powerful reminder, you are not alone. God is with you. God is among you. His glory resides in that gathering. And all that changes everything of how we approach the gathering. We come to this gathering of God's church as God's temple with a sense of awe, a sense of anticipation. And we make sure his word is clear in everything we do. And as we pray, we're not just saying words, we're actually encountering God as we sing to him. And we're not just going through motions, we're actually worshiping God. And when we open God's word, somebody teaches and we're hearing from God. This is the communion with God in the temple. And the temple is not the building. It's the people. And it's his gathering of God's people. Let's pray. Lord God, what an awesome privilege it is to be a part of your building project. Some of us have been part of uh, various building projects of physical buildings here on this earth, and, and it's exciting to watch it come together and come up as we work together as teams. But how much more exciting it is, Lord, to be a part of your building project of your church here on earth, your temple, the gathering of, of believers in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we, we thank you for that privilege. We thank you for what you're doing here among us at Maranatha. And we ask that you would continue to build your church and that you would use us. And Lord, if there be somebody here today who, who does not know for sure of their own relationship with you. We, we pray that your word today would remind them that the things that they're looking for, uh, transcendence, a significance in, in their life, something that matters to live for, and a sense of community with others, Lord, that, that they'd understand that, that that's what you intend as they're called to be a part of a fellowship of believers in, in you. We thank you that in Jesus there's forgiveness of sin and eternal life, and we pray that you'd help to spread that message through us, even this week, and in the weeks to come, we pray your blessing on, on the youth as they come back from the fly convention and as they share in our service next week. Uh, we pray that you'd continue that work in their hearts and lives and use them. We pray for a vacation Bible school at the end of this month, Lord, that that too would be a, a significant outreach in this community to point others to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that they also would be drawn into the community of believers and be part of your temple expansion project. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.